It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 Toronto, 95.7 Ottawa. Also on the iHeartRadio app. Download the app. Take us with you and listen to us anywhere you go. It's a real pleasure to welcome back to Moment of Truth, Sarah Milroy, Chief Curator at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection in in Kleinberg, Ontario. And uh, actually, Sarah was on during the summer talking about some events that were happening. Well, she's back because there's more exciting stuff going on. And, (laughs) and, And maybe to elaborate on some of those things we also spoke about. So Sarah, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be back. Well, we have a big, the big mother of all shows. We are um, presenting an exhibition called Uninvited, Canadian Women Artists in the Modern Moment. Mm -hmm. And the show is really, (laughs) it's a monster. It's uh, almost 40, you know, different writers in the catalog. It is a a large roster of uh, women artists that were working in the period of the 1920s and 30s primarily, although yes. there are a few straggling dates on either side of that. Mm-hmm. But um, the the point of the show is to take a look at, at women artists who were active in the period when Canadian art was really defined popularly in the imagination by the group of seven and the white male artists of the day. Yes. And, um, of course, the group of seven is what I'm referring to, and that is... You know, at, at McMichael, we hold an, an extraordinarily deep and spectacular collection of the Group of Seven and, and their contemporaries, David mm-hmm. Milne, Emily Carr, and so on. Those are a well-known um, part of our collection. Um, but this exhibition really focuses on the women artists that were their contemporaries at that time who are making very different kinds of works, um, including Indigenous women makers from this period who were... Uh, in some cases, continuing traditional um, cultural practices in their art making. In other cases, they were making objects for trade into the new settler economy mm. and you know, trying to find their way forward mm. um, through through you know bringing their um, their work that had been made ancestrally um, into the marketplace, which is of course was never something that was contemplated by mm-hmm. um, indigenous peoples in the generations before them. So it's, you know, it's a complex show because it has many kinds of Canadian women in it and they're right. all, you know, they're all there. So all those different narratives are kind of woven together. Yeah. As you were talking there, I couldn't help but think how exciting that must have been for you uh, to look at all this work going through that. And and being that you said, like, it's it's 100 years and, uh, and, and you're looking at that time frame. Mm. What jumped out at you, if anything, uh, looking at the women and their backgrounds and where they were coming from that you think, you one yeah. either you found interesting, or you think that that an audience looking at this might want to look for. Well, you know, one of the distinctive things about the women artists of this period is, you know, the men that we were referring to in the group of seven, mm. you know, they were all involved with commercial illustration. Mm. Um, they were right. they were trained. A lot of them had had been to art art school in. Mm you know, here in Canada or, you know, in Europe in some cases, but they really came to their fine art practices via uh, commercial illustration. And Mm. that, that I think gives an orientation towards art making that is different in Mm. terms of, 
you know, what is the market? Sure. And, you know, uh, obviously these paintings are, are deeply heartfelt, but they're framed within the context of being received. Yes. I wonder you know, when I look at the diversity and the radicality of the women artists at this time, whether or not they, you know, were in, in a sense liberated by not having that the expectation necessarily of selling the work to support families or, you know, um, uh, le- you know, lead households. They were making work um, that, you know, may or may not have had an audience. And there is a sense of um, you know, an exploration of the self that mm-hmm. could be, you know, could be a, an aspect of that sociological, you know, issue, or it could just be their own inclination. They also have completely different interests in subject matter. Like the men artists who prevailed in the day were really obsessed with this idea of wilderness, which, of course, we know is a, fa- is a settler fantasy mm. because these lands were not wilderness to indigenous people. They were right. home <laughs> and they were settled lands. Sure. Um, but, you know, the group of seven, you know, ha- I think have taken a bit of a beating over the past several decades for this sort of assumption of a kind of virgin wilderness. Yeah. And this, this became a kind of a credo in the group. Um, the women didn't seem to have any interest in that idea at all. And I, I don't think it's just because they couldn't travel with as much freedom as the men could. I think it's because they were interested in in people. They were interested in portraits. They were interested in the city. Um, as a subject, they were interested in social issues um, like poverty and, you know, during the Depression, you know, homeless people in the streets. And mm. when you see, you know, when you see some of this work in this show, you kind of see the dark side of the moon of, mm. you know, the kind of rosy view of, of Canada that that is perpetuated in the paintings of the Group of Seven, beautiful as they are. And the the other big thing you notice when you look at women from across the country, I'm talking about settler women in this case, is there what I really truly see as a respectful and courteous interest in Indigenous women and the things that they made. So, you know, it's it's not just Emily Carr um, who is taking an interest in, in, in Indigenous culture. It's Nora Brown in Alberta, you know, and it's uh, Winifred Petchy Marsh, who was a missionary's wife in Arviat at Eskimo Point. Mm. She's a very interesting example because she was trained as an artist in London, mm. and then um, she married and moved to, to um, Arviat, which was then called Eskimo Point. And God bless her husband, he used to stick notes up all over the house saying, remember, you were first and foremost an artist, <laughs> which we love him for. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, she used to deliver babies and pull teeth and all that. But when she wasn't <laughs> busy with that, she made these exquisite watercolors of um, that community and of the land around it and of the the women and the children there. But the most notable part of her production are these very, very detailed jewel tone depictions of the beadwork mm. uh, made by women in this community. And she was a real connoisseur of it and studied it very, very carefully. And indeed, before she left Arviat, um, she acquired through trade or purchase, we're not sure how, um, a number of major beadwork pieces that ended up residing in the Manitoba Museum. So, what we're able to do in this show is put uh, an artist like Atasiak, who was one of the mm. you know leading beadworkers in that community, one of her one of her works together with um, the Winifred Petchy Marsh watercolor of it. And you know, there's other places where we are able to see portraits of the women who were making these objects. So there's a real knitting together of the settler gaze 
and the indigenous presence, you know, in, in a number of these. We also have a basket by Sophie Frank, who was a, a lifelong friend of Emily Carr's, together with Carr's portrait of Frank and, and Carr's self-portrait. There's a massive, I don't want to steal the thunder from the end of the show, but there's a massive gallery at the end of the show devoted to Emily Carr, and it has um, really in the middle of the space, uh, really uh, uh, presented with a lot of emphasis, a, a big selection of Coast Salish baskets that we were lucky enough to borrow mm. from the Royal Ontario Museum uh, in this kind of large, long, undulating table that kind of goes up and down and, and threads its way through the gallery space. But, you know, the baskets and the paintings of Carr really, like, are in a strong conversation with each other. And, of course, you know, the baskets speak of environmental knowledge mm. and history, mm. transmission, mm-hmm. Um and Emily Carr's paintings speak about her own experience of landscape, but they also speak about the brutality of resource extraction mm. in this period in British Columbia. So there's kind of the settler way of relating to the landscape and the indigenous way of relating to the landscape are kind of talking to each other in that room. Mm. And, you know, that's the final room in the show. It's, 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 it's breathtaking. And, you know, I think the meaning of it is, is deep for people now. I mean, the kind of way in sure. which, You know, Indigenous women, um, it has been explained to me that, you know, weaving the basket is the tip of the iceberg, that what Mm -hmm. you need to know is, you know, where the roots grow straight, Mm -hmm. where the clay is right for bearing the roots to to cure them and and give them color, you know, that all the knowledge of harvesting and preparing, you know, is 90%, if not more, of making the basket. So. They're opposites, you know, but mm. they but they meet here in this show to, to, to look at to look at each other and for people to be able to contemplate both. Sounds fascinating. What a great exhibit it sounds like. And that's on from September tenth until January sixteenth, I believe. Yes. Great. So it's gonna be with us all through the fall. Yep. And, you know, there is there's just so much material here. There, you know, there are a number of other spectacular indigenous makers in the show, Elizabeth Cat Petrant from Bear Island to Mogami, mm. beautiful moss bag, um, and also a basket by her mother um, as well in the same room. So you get this idea of intergenerational knowledge um, being passed down. Um, I would add also um, uh, Bridget Ann Sack, who is a extraordinary uh, quill work basket maker, uh, Mi'kmaq from Nova Scotia, who's we have a beautiful selection uh, in the exhibition. You know, there's a lot of Indigenous content in the show, mm. and there's a lot of content of um, settler women who are engaging with this uh, with this material. And mm. and there's a lot of stuff in the wall labels too. I love wall labels because I love <laughs> to write them. But you know, Anne Savage who was a, a very, very important settler woman artist in Montreal. She taught for many years at Baron Bing High School. And then in the summertime, she'd make her own paintings. But she got a commission in 1927 to travel to the Skeena River and uh, paint the communities and the landscape of the Skeena River. I was just in that region of British Columbia this mm. summer. And it's, of course, an extraordinarily beautiful mm. part of our country. Mm-hmm. And... Um, she, you know, when she was there, she was there at the at the pleasure of Marius Barbeau, who was the head of what was then called the Museum of Man, I believe, now the Museum of History. Mm. And she registers, you know, in her writing and her journals that she's offended by what she calls this, quote, silly little Barbeau man. Um, and the reason she calls him that 
is that he's she sees that he's rude and pushy mm. with the indigenous people mm. in that you know in that community mm. it was uh, you know get meow and other communities that they were uh, visiting but you know she found him offensive there was a it, it was an intrinsic um kind of sensitivity that she had about how one might go about you know being invited to go back to the title of the show um i mean what's complex and interesting about the title of the show is you know it's called uninvited but of course all settler people were uninvited yes, here yes uh, but then also the women artists more generally were uninvited kind of to the high table of fame and fortune right. in canadian art yes so there's kind of rings within rings sure, here sure but you know it's super complex but um i think it'll be you know i think it'll be a very important show both for nudging people's understanding of of um, the kind of parallel tracks of indigenous and settler experience, you know, in uh, in this period, which mm. was, of course, such a fraught one for indigenous people, mm-hmm. uh, but also to really understand the force of female cre- creativity in this yeah. in this moment. I mean, you you walk through the show and you are blown down by the power of the work that these women made and the fact that their names have been, you know, kind of not in common parlance and, you know, for all this hundred years almost of time since they were making these works. It's just extraordinary that that so many people will be discovering these women now. And I should add, you know, there has been a lot of outstanding scholarly work done on these artists over the years. But the fact is that museums, you know, and it's a fact that they were largely run by men mm. um, would not devote proper resources to either the exhibitions in terms of gathering the works and incurring the cost of that or producing catalogs that were like full color and you know, properly resourced for, um, you know, I don't know, the, the research required to really, you know, make a bigger book or be able to do a, a book that has more pages in it. So, obviously, mm. more information can be included. Like most, when there are monographic mm. uh, shows on Canadian women artists, with the exception of Emily Carr, mm. where there's quite a bit, but with the exception of Emily Carr, you know, an artist like Anne Savage or Prudence Heward, brilliant, brilliant women mm. and, you know, very, very slenderly represented in monographic um, exhibition catalogs just devoted to them so you know what we know why this is but you know the the hope with this show is to basically you know i've been saying to our to our funders and to our contributors and everyone we're building a battering ram we're really simply just trying to create a seismic shift in terms of how we we understand the history of art in this country and the the country itself and mm-hmm. I think that the presence of Indigenous women in this show is going to be a very powerful and engaging tool in that. Yeah, I remember using the, the term battering ram before from our conversation. and Well, it's on, it's on my mind. <laughs> I feel like a battering ram myself some days. <laughs> well, and you are describing a very, as you say, complex uh, presentation in this show. Yeah. So many levels to look at, so many levels to consider, Sarah. It sounds wonderful. Yes. I, I was thinking about your job, having to go through all of this stuff and look at yeah. it and try to decide what makes it, what doesn't, and, and even just looking at all these these fascinating pieces of work uh you must you must have some really wonderful moments um you know looking over all of this stuff but i guess also challenging moments as well in terms of trying to decide what will finally make it and and what won't yeah yeah well we had one real um uh 
late breaking development was a woman called Irene Sparks Drummond, who was a, a Afro-Canadian basket maker. She was uh, from um, a little community just outside of Halifax. And she was making baskets in this period in the 30s and 40s. We'd been looking and looking for a black Canadian woman in this period. And we were looking for a woman who was like a painter or a sculptor. We went high and low. And, and what ended up, you know, it was very important for us to have that reality represented in the exhibition. We ended up actually doing a, a, a major Denise Tomaso show, who mm. was a, a, camp, a contemporary Caribbean Canadian artist who... Uh, that show was up for a little while longer, actually. Um, uh, at the same time as Uninvited, in order to hold that space, you know, within the museum for for the creativity of Black women. Um, but we could not find anyone in the period because we were we were looking at painting and sculpture. We were not looking where we needed to look. Mm. Almost ninety percent of Black women in this period were in, in, engaged in domestic service, mm-hmm. and the other in in factory work or agriculture. And the, the communities around Halifax, the black women there, those communities largely migrated around the War of 1812 into Canada. Um, so, you know, the, the, it was quite a dense and, of course, Africville is very famous, but there are also a number of other communities, small communities, farming communities around Halifax that had, you know, a solid presence of um, uh, black emigre families in, in them. And... You know, we ended up deciding at the last minute, you know, after the publication of the catalog, you know, all the gates were closed. The show was finished and we found this woman and her story and we've included her in the show. So, Mm. you know, what's interesting is that her baskets are going to be shown in the same room with a with a painting by Prudence Heward called Dark Girl. Mm. And Dark Girl is is a nude of a of a black woman um, painted by Prudence Heward. It's a very famous painting in the history of Canadian art, but deeply troubling because the woman's expression is one of kind of abject discomfort. Mm. And the ch- and the likelihood is that this woman was a servant in the household, in mm. the Heward household, mm-hmm. and was sort of pressed into duty as a model. She was right. most likely not a professional model in Montreal. Right. And, and so, you know, she would have been, you know, making her livelihood in domestic service in the way that was very much the prevalent norm at that time and the basket you know Irene Sparks Drummond the baskets kind of speak to that because this is an, an you know another tradition in which female creativity expressed itself you know in in this in this idiom of basket making at the time because those you know the the um, cha- financial challenges facing mm-hmm. black women and their families i mean of course it was not likely that they would be going to art school Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'd been looking in the wrong place, mm. and but we found her in time to put into the show. And I nice. thought, well, I'm not going to leave it out just because the catalog's finished. Sure. You know, let's just be bold and, and, and do this and see how it feels. Yeah. And honestly, you know, we don't know how it's going to feel to see those baskets, yeah. uh, beautiful, dainty, gorgeous, mathematical works of genius that they are, Um in a room full of uh, white woman and one black mm, nude, mm, um, mm. It, it could be. It could feel bad. It could feel right. important. It, right. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, these you know, exhibitions are experiments, right. and all we can do is provide all the information we can, and put things out there for the public to chew on. And and mm. that's kind of the approach we've taken all the way through the show. Is let's not decide how people are going to feel about this. 
Wow. Let's put all the evidence out there of what was happening in Canada with women artists in this mm-hmm. time and let people think about it. Wow. wow, that's a lot for people to uh, consider, but a lot for people to look at. And uh, as you say, um, it's an exhibition that the McMichael has put together and, and Sarah yourself uh, curated and, and, and put together that people can go and see. But as you just said, it's an experiment. So people can be part yeah. of this experiment as well when they go to see the show. And that's running from September 10th uh, of this year until January 16th of 2022. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Sarah Milroy. She's the chief curator at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection in Kleinberg, talking about uninvited Canadian women artists in the modern moment. And uh, that's one of the things going on at the the uh, Kleinberg uh, McMichael Collection. Uh, but there are other things going on as well. As Sarah, you mentioned one, and I think it's finishing up fairly soon. Um, it's Denise Tomasos. Yes. Yes. Who who died about eight years ago, but an extraordinary Canadian artist originally from Trinidad. Mm. And um, that show is on until mid-October, I believe. Right. I'm just yeah. checking October here. October 24th, I believe it is. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yes. And that show is, is really spectacular. And what's wonderful is that while this show has been on, uh, I should say, too, that the Denise Tomaso show, our publication, has a, an essay in it by Essie Dukian, who many of your re- uh, listeners might know, a wonderful Victoria-based um, uh, Canadian author who agreed to, to write about Denise's work. She didn't know about her work, and, and we actually sent a small painting of Denise's out to live with her in Victoria while she wrote the essay, mm. and she's done a beautiful, beautiful job. But that that show, yeah, that show closes on October 24th. And one of the big works in it called Gore Island, if visitors come, you'll see it's a big black and white painting that's that's about eight feet tall. And God only knows how long it is. It's huge. Mm. And uh, we have just learned recently that 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 painting is going to the Whitney Biennial and will likely be acquired by the Whitney Museum. So, Mm. you know, Denise did not. You know, she was a professor at Rutgers and she'd gone to Yale. I mean, she had great mm. success in her lifetime, mm. but it seems like that career is finally, you know, truly catching fire. Mm. And um, we just wish she was here to, to yeah. see it. But but her family is, her daughter is, you know, and uh, it's beautiful to be a part of that trajectory. Mm-hmm. Wow, great. So people can catch that up until October 24th. There's this other one, which uh, it seemed a little un- unassuming to me uh, until I went and looked at it and I found it really interesting. <laughs> You're talking about John Sasaki. I am. <laughs> <laughs> that is the sleeper hit of the summer. We are, people are just loving that show. John Sasaki is a conceptual artist in Toronto in kind of, I guess, early mid-career, mid-career. And um, John John has a, a really extraordinary brain, and he always looks at things from a fresh perspective. And he started his career as a landscape painter, um, <laughs> studying at Mount Allison. And then he came to Toronto, and he his art took a turn into the more conceptual. But his idols in his early years had been the Group of Seven. So what John did was work with our conservator, Allison Douglas, to take bacterial and fungal culture swabs <laughs> from objects that we own at the McMichael, like the easels and paintbrushes and so on, and um, paint palettes that had been used by the Group of Seven and Tom Thompson. He swabbed them. He then grew cultures from them in, in Petri dishes yes. and then photographed the blooms of those mm-hmm. um, 
those fungal and bacterial cultures in dishes. And weirdly and wonderfully, they kind of look like landscapes in a funny way. (laughs) And they are nature pictures of a different sort because, of course, you know, microbial life, Mm. you know, the, the miniature life we all know all too well right now is is part of nature as well. And so it's a kind of a riposte in a way to the group of seven, but it's really more a kind of a, an homage mm. to these artists that have been, you know, he's sort of making the Turin shroud out of these bits and pieces mm-hmm. that they left behind that we have in our holdings. Yeah. And the show is both kind of on some level, very funny, right. But also, you know, deeply poignant. And yeah. we're showing these photographs, which are big, they're large right. format okay. um, on the wall. And then the objects from which they were, um, you know, from which the bacterial cultures were taken are in the cases. So you can see all these things that the group of seven used, and then you can see what John Sasaki has made of them. And it's, it's just a marvelous show. We have it in our founder's lounge and um, people are just adoring it. Yeah. yeah it's a wonderful that, little show. And we're going to be touring it, it to various museums in Ontario after us to various right. places. Uh, uh, Tom Thompson gallery, uh, our gallery of Algoma, I think. And there's a couple of others that are, mm in the works so it'll be making the rounds of ontario so keep Great. your eyes out for it okay now uh, we're, we're, it will be with us for quite a while it's yeah. not going anywhere anytime soon okay now the other thing that i found very interesting by the way um with the uh, tom thompson one um i didn't realize that he wasn't a member of the group of seven no was, uh, yeah he was the he was the kind of the inspiration in a way i mean he died in Canoe Lake before the formation of the group. Mm. So his death really resonated with the, with the painters mm. that would become the group. Mm. They felt um, they were hugely impressed by his extraordinary gift because he was really, he was trained in commercial illustration, but really kind of taught himself how to make those oil sketches that he made, which mm. are incandescently beautiful mm. And, you know, then he sort of flares and he has four or five solid years of painting in this classic Thompson style and then he dies. Mm. So, you know, and, and his death was also, um, you know, kind of at the same time, there was a whole generation of young men that died mm. at that time at war. Mm-hmm. So there was a which took on this kind of elegiac summons, you know, to to others who were still alive to sort of take up the sword and do something for Canada. And I think that's what the group of seven Mm. um, really, really sought to do. And um, yeah, so he was kind of the on switch for the group of seven, but not the group of seven itself. Honorary member. We also have a a beautiful room of Tom Thompson's, by the way, if you come into the gallery and go up the ramp, there's a whole room of them that are the cream of our collection of Thompson's and they are spectacular. Nice. So, just before we finish up, what can people expect if they go? Uh, can they get in to see all of these things with an yep. entry fee? Yeah, we don't break it out. All right, Sarah, you've given us so much to think about, so many things for people to go and see at McMichael uh, and some very important uh, things as well. Thank you once again for taking time to join us on the show. Of course, it's always my pleasure, David. All right, Sarah, you take care, and we'll be talking again soon, I'm sure. I hope so. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. Bye. Sarah Milroy is the Chief Curator at McMichael Canadian Art Collection in Kleinberg, and it's been a pleasure speaking with her about some of the fascinating and wonderful things upcoming and ongoing at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection. More right here on Moment of Truth right after this pause. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. 
Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app if you download the app. And uh, you can listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show for his second season, uh, premiering on the Aboriginal People's Television Network starting on September 8th. I have with me spirit talker Sean Leonard. Now, he was on last year for the first season, and I'm happy to say that it went very well. He's back. And uh, Sean, it is a pleasure to have you back on the show. Well, thank you for having me on the show, David, and thank you for all your listeners for tuning in today to uh, learn a little bit more about Spirit Talker uh, Season 2 on APTN. Mm. Now, uh, as you pointed out, you know, I had a, an opportunity to see a little bit of some of the upcoming episodes, and uh, there's a little bit of a, of a change around this season, right? You, you took a little bit of a different approach because uh, last year you were in front of a live audience. This time, you're going uh, a little more uh, subdued. You, you're doing doing sort of one-on-ones with people and it feels more intimate. Uh, I guess it also feels like you're going deeper. It really does feel like there is more happening uh, around you guys, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, well, season one was great. We didn't have COVID-19, so we could do live studio audience shows and just read people. And then the producers would pick like three people from that audience and Mm -hmm. highlight them in the show itself. Right. So the format, because of COVID-19 this year, and we're going to different Indigenous communities uh, in Atlantic Canada, is um, there'll be four families that could enter their name for a draw. Actually, everybody who was in that community could enter the name for a draw. Mm -hmm. And then the producers would actually draw from a hat, give them a call, and see if they were still interested in coming to be part of the show. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people that did, I would do four sessions with four different families, I would not meet them until they actually were sitting in front of me. And then, um, and then, then the producers then again, highlight two people or two families for the show itself. Hmm. So they're looking for, you know, that arc of healing or the messages that come through. So they, I mean, I don't have anything to do with that so much Hmm. as just doing what I do, but uh, it's a bit different because can't be in front of an audience, but still trying to find a way to show people how, you know, spirit communication takes place, how it yeah. comes through and the messages that can come with them and, and the profound healing that can follow it. Right. And of course, uh, there's a lot of that and you get a, a sense of that as you see some of these uh, some of these things that are going on. It looks quite fascinating. Congratulations to you and the team. Um, Thank you. Thank and, you. you know, the other thing, not beyond the stories that uh, that you get to see of these personal people's lives as you delve into that side of it. Um, the other thing, of course, you're doing is that is pointed out a couple of things. One, you're you're on your own sort of um, cultural journey that that you're learning around your own culture, and that's one of the things. But you're you're taking us to these absolutely beautiful communities and these First Nations out on the East Coast. Yeah, I mean that's the best one of the best parts of the show. I mean you yeah. get to experience profound healings that are taking place. Yep through the messages that come through and the sessions that uh, are provided for those people. But I'm also on a journey of discovering my indigenous culture as, you know, I wasn't raised on a reserve myself, although I um, very proud Mi'kmaq person here in Nova Scotia, Canada. Uh, My grandmom also was not raised. She was actually born in Newfoundland in a Mi'kmaq community, but when she was born, um, there was no reserves 
mm. in Newfoundland. Newfoundland wasn't even part of Canada when my grandma was born. Wow. And uh, she she married a, a, a Caucasian fisherman and had 16 children and became very disconnected from her identity. And in a sense, lost her language and forgot most of the culture that was shared with her from her ancestors and the mm. people that she was uh, uh, raised with and when she was young. So growing up, uh, even though I lived very near uh, an indigenous community here in Nova Scotia, I, you know, I had I didn't have as much knowledge as I would like to have about who I am. Mm. And that's part of my journey is to go through these communities but also learn something about myself and my culture and my connection to it all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, that's like one of my favorite parts because I get to meet so many incredibly great people and I get to learn some awesome things like yeah. this year, like canoe making yeah. or, or uh, you know, uh, quill work and things yeah. like that. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really, really cool that I can, that this, this is happening for me in that sense. And I, you know, the audience who are tuning in are going on that adventure with me. Yeah. And they, they get to learn what I'm learning on my journey. And it's it's super cool because there's a lot of people that I feel like kind of are in my, let's so to say, boat in mm-hmm. a sense where, you know, they've been they've moved away from their community or they're they moved away when they're young or they just didn't have a connection to their culture. And they've never had that opportunity to kind of learn. So I think the show is is a great way to kind of experience that as well. Uh, yeah, I would agree. And not only that, the other thing I would say that you're adding is, you know, well, obviously there's the, there's the education the, uh, of what you're learning around the communities. Uh, and then, then there's that travel side of things because you're getting to see these wonderful areas that people may want to, once things uh, start to open up, may want to travel to and visit. And um, there's, a, I think there's another side and, and it's more of the, uh, the economic side, which is these, you know, that Labrador family that makes these incredibly uh, incredible canoes. Wow. Uh, you know, that's something I'm sure that that uh, could be something that if, if somebody's really into canoes and would want one uh, traditionally made, they'd love to get a hold of that family and, and have them ma- make one for them. Oh, absolutely. Todd, he's a good friend of mine. And, yeah. uh, and I know, I mean, I've known Todd for years. And the fact that I was able to go out with him, uh, yeah. have him be part of the show. Yeah. Uh, was something that I kind of wanted to have him part of the show just because, you know, he's such an artisan Mm -hmm. and he has, he has a skill that I've never seen anywhere else matched by any, any other indigenous person in Canada. I don't know everybody, so I can't speak (laughs) for for everybody, but for me, uh, you know, Todd being his local, uh, local fellow in Nova Scotia, I know that he's uh, built birch bark canoes for the Ottawa museum and such like this, the yeah. natural history museum. Right. And I feel he, he's actually been called to different parts of the countries mm. uh, within Canada to also teach about canoe building. Um, what It's a great skill and honor to have him on the show and uh, to kind of highlight his abilities and his knowledge mm. in uh, building bridge bread canoes as well. Mm-hmm. During these these sessions uh, that you hold with these families, why is it do you think we have to go turn to people like yourselves, which is wonderful that you are able to do this, don't get me wrong. I'm just wondering, because family members are close to these people, uh, how is it do you think that, that family are not able to make that connection or not able to have that somehow? Well, a big part of my work is one validation uh, from spirit of who they are and how they're connected. But another a huge part of it is the healing. Hmm. 
And I, I mean, I don't negate anybody that is a psychologist, a therapist, a yep. psychiatrist, or anybody out there. I think, you know, the creator made all kinds of people to sure. kind of serve people in different ways. But I feel like, um, it, let's just speak of the toaster for a second. Yeah, okay. Um, it's an odd thing, and you maybe not know why, because, uh, you know, from the clip on on the season two yep. trailer, yeah. which is on my uh, Facebook, or um, on my YouTube channel, which you can everybody can go there and watch, Um you know, they often take me to places where a person hasn't healed. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a backstory to this. And of course, I yeah. don't want to ruin it all because I want people to watch the show. Absolutely. But, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, as it will come out that that young girl um, was assaulted in uh, life, sexually assaulted right. for several years by somebody mm. who cannot be named. Yeah. But um, anyway, um, she struggled in life. And she often hurt herself. Mm. And I connected to a friend of hers that had taken her own life. Mm. And, um, and she was really struggling with the loss of her friend. And I believe that the girl that I was speaking to had even had several attempts of taking her own life as well mm. because of what she endured. Mm. Um, and she used to hurt herself with the toaster. Mm. And her friend had brought that up to me. You know, in all my 25 plus years of doing this work. It's the first time I've ever seen anybody ever show me that, mm. show me a toaster. And then when, cause I don't, I'm the middle person. I'm the sure. medium. I'm the spirit talker. I yeah. don't always know why spirit is taking me to a certain thing. Right. But to that person, it means something. Sure. And to that young lady who is very beautiful and very bright light, um, incredibly um, spiritually connected in her own right, in her own ways, um, you know, parts of ceremonies with her mom and such like this. Mm-hmm. But nobody knows how she struggled. Mm. But her friend in spirit does. And she right. thinks that no one knows these things. Right. Then when spirit comes through with such a message taking me to an area, they they the reason why they take me there is because this is where she's hurting. Yes. This is the pain in her life that I may be able to help her move through. And maybe with working with spirit, we're helping her move to a better, more healed place of acceptance yes, and uh, compassion for herself and forgiveness. If she's carrying anything that may be in regards to the pain that she endured in life because she has guilt, uh, which she shouldn't be carrying. Mm. So when I connect to her friend who had lost her life um, because of, choosing to take her own life because of a similar circumstance, her friend came through and and went right, you know, said a few things to make sure that she knew uh, she was guiding me to the place where I needed to help this young girl. Mm, Right. And um, this was a secret that nobody knows. Right. And uh, I mean, obviously you can see by the shock in her face that it, uh, it, it it profoundly affected her and her mom and her both look at each other and they know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and the, and the reason why spirit would take me there is, again, can I help them heal there? Can spirit work with me to help them heal because they're struggling? And that's the real reason that spirit comes through with people is, one, there's validation, but people hang on to energy. Even though you're connected to your people, there might be one person that you didn't get to see just before right. they passed away or you didn't know they were sick and you know you're carrying the guilt of miss thinking that you missed something in regards to prior to their passing whether it was you know a, you know a suicide or somebody who was dying of a different illness and you know we can beat ourselves up mm. Mm. and we carry that energetic uh, 
let's call it a, a weight within our spirit. And uh, it's a heavy weight that weighs on us over time. Right. And sometimes people could, and I do suggest everybody that struggles in certain ways to, you know, spirit talkers, mediums are great. But, you know, a good counselor, good therapist, a good psychologist could also really, really help. Yeah. And, um, and I actually have, like, when I used to do sessions here in Nova Scotia, I mean, I have probably about eight to 10 psychologists, therapists uh, who are clients of mine. <laughs> but they also reference their clients to me. Sure. When they feel like that they can't reach somebody in a yep. certain way. Yep. So they would say, you know, my therapist had mentioned that I should come see you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because they're 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 not able to heal in a certain area of their life because of a loss. Right. So that's why um, you know certain stories or certain people um, can benefit from um, a connection like that. Yes. One um, knowing that you know spirit is absolutely real. They exist. They continue on. They can communicate. They still have memories, and they still care about you. Hmm. Um, they see that you are struggling. They are no longer struggling where they are, but they see that you struggle and they don't want to watch us struggle here in the world. Yeah. They want to see us live our best lives. Yeah. yeah. And if they can move you from a, 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 a point of pain to healing, um, that's why they work through me in that way. And I feel, you know, super honored. I super blessed by spirit that they trust me to, do my best with the information that they give me as I do, because I, that's how I approach it. I approach it from kindness, compassion, you know, love, unconditional love with no fear and no judgment, no matter what anybody says to me or what they've been through, what they they've gone through, what they've experienced. I mean, we're all human, you know, living hopefully our best lives, but yeah. there's a lot of people that are here just getting by because of a loss or right. uh, something that they've gone through a trauma. Yeah. And oh, they've lost people, and it's it. You know, it weighs on a lot of people. Yep. And and the coolest thing about a show uh, like Spirit Talker is that there's a lot of stories that re- will resonate with a lot of people for different reasons. Yeah. You know, not everybody comes on the show has the same story. I mean, there's a lot of people that have lost their mom and they just want to connect. Yeah. But then there's a there's certain messages that come through for certain people that will resonate with them while they're viewing the show. Mm-hmm. And yep. even though they're not really having a session with me personally, yes. they're able to maybe look at their life differently, look at their grief differently, look at maybe healing differently. And uh, it helps them move into a better space of life. Right. Yes, nicely said. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Sean Leonard. He is the host and also the medium or spirit talker of the show Spirit Talker that is on APTN and it will be premiering on its second season on September the 14th and 15th uh, of this year. And it's going to be at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as well as Mountain Time. And uh, Sean is here talking about the new season. Uh, he, of course, is a Nova Scotia-based Mingamau medium, and uh, he was on the show last year for his first season as well, and it's a pleasure to have Sean back on the show. Uh, and, and you know, Sean, as you were talking there, um, you know, that healing side of what you were talking about, 
I, I'm wondering, have do you ever get uh, contacted by by people that you've ha- had helped in the past uh, and hear from them about how their lives have moved forward? Yeah, I, I get a lot of messages thanking me, you know, saying that I've, I've changed their life. You know, it's, mm. you know, when I get a message saying how I profoundly affected somebody's life, it, 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 it it's incredibly rewarding and I feel very good and, I, and I'm just joyfully happy that I'm, I'm doing the work that I do. Yeah. And because I take it like super seriously, a lot of people think that, you know, spirit talking or mediumship or things like that is like, some people think it's hokey pokey. Sure. But, you know, maybe if you've never had the experience or, or whatever, or maybe you've never really had proof for yourself or you've never been affected by some of the messages that have come through from the spirit world for yourself or whoever, I mean, you'll never know. Hmm. Um, but maybe watching Spirit Talk will help you see that um, how beneficial um, this work is for people. And I get, I get messages all the time. And um, mostly from people from the show now, because I don't uh, personally do any sessions anymore because my life is crazy. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just busy between, I'm now filming season three in Ontario and Quebec right now. (laughs) Great. And uh, I'm I'm back home for the month of September, but I'm going back out to finish season three. But, uh, you know, uh, it's been quite the journey. Yeah. You know, I'm a human. I can only uh, serve so many people in life. Yes. And, uh, you know, I also have an online course where I help people develop called Spirit Talker Tribe. And mm. the reason why I do that, too, which I give a lot of energy to, as well as a Spirit Talker TV show, is that I'm only one person. There mm. needs to be other people out there mm. understanding how this process works so right. that other people can be reached, you know, outside of my person. Yes. I'm not the only one that is connected. Mm. I, and I, and, I, and it's, I think it's super important to help people realize this is attainable for everyone if you try. I'm glad you said that. It was a question I was going to ask you about. I, I think we may have discussed that before, and I, and I apologize if I've forgotten. But, but I'm wondering, could you share a little bit about how you first became aware of your ability in this area? What, what happened that triggered or made you aware that this is something that you could help people with? Well, I started a spiritual journey. My, well, the first thing that I, I mean, my whole life has been a little strange, just, mm. to, just to <laughs> make that a note. I've had spirits with me when I was a young boy, usually my great grandparents, nothing too, uh, <laughs> too scary, anything like that at all. Yeah. And then my dad just passed away when I was 15 years old. And I had an incredible visitation with him when I was 16. Mm. And I detail all that into my book. But as I got into my 20s, because I'm 49 right now, in my, my early 20s, I started to become more spiritual. And I was looking and searching for something bigger than religion. Not anything against religion, but I right. just I wanted to like walk a spiritual path in life. And I started to just pray more and just like have conversations with spirit. Hmm. I started to then meditate. And, uh, and then I started to become more intuitive. And I didn't really know I was a psychic medium or a spirit talker. I just thought I was like everyone else. And it was, uh, <laughs> you know, things started to happen where I would know things about people. And I thought it was kind of odd. And then I thought for a little while, I might be a mind reader. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, I mean, how could you know unless sure. there's some way to really prove that yeah. this is coming from somewhere? And it was yeah. actually a guy I worked with named Orhan. I started to tell him about my experiences. And a great guy. 
And uh, one day I was sitting at my computer in Calgary working, uh, doing bills and materials AutoCAD for an office furniture company. And I started to hear a voice in my head and the voice just said, Charlie. And it just said, Charlie, over and over again. I thought, okay, great. I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> and to be honest, I wasn't sure what was happening. And because uh, it wasn't a voice that I heard, it was like a thought that came into my mind and it didn't seem, it wasn't telling me to do anything bad. It was a kind voice. Yep. And I thought, okay, this is really strange. Now, you know, prior to all that, I never heard any voices before. Hmm. And then I looked at Oram because I was going to tell him that I was going to leave work because I wasn't feeling well. I was just a little off and uh, because of hearing this voice. And uh, when I looked at him, it stopped. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is very uniquely different. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, okay, well, I'm a mind reader. This is what's happening. Orhan's thinking about a guy named Charlie. And that he's doing something with him on the weekend. And I'm, I'm going to ask him about Charlie mm. to clarify what's really happening with me. Mm. So I asked him and I said, Dorian, you, I got a really strange question for you. But do you know a guy named Charlie? And he stopped and he looked at me and he turned and he goes, I used to know a guy named Charlie. I'm like, what do you mean you used to know a guy? Well, he's passed away now. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I just wanted to change the subject. Yeah. And then I got a picture in my mind. It is of a bar in Calgary called the Town and Country Bar. And I've, I've seen the bar because I've been to that bar before. And it's a big T and C sign mm. for the Town and Country Bar. Mm -hmm. And it just flashed into my head like a picture, like I was remembering a bit. But there'd be no reason why I'd be remembering it this time. Right. I said, that's so weird. Why would I see the Town and Country Bar sign? He goes, what did you say? I said, I just saw the Town and Country Bar sign in my mind. He goes, that's the last place Charlie was seen alive. I'm like, what? <laughs> mm. And I was like, and he goes, yeah. I, and I mean, you don't have to be psychic to know when somebody says you were last seen somewhere that yeah. something happened to you. Right. I didn't know what happened. Right. But then I had another image uh, of this man who was kind of darker skinned fellow. And uh, he walked down a set of stairs and into this kind of basement apartment. And I asked Orion, I said, do you know what this means? And I saw a few people with him, And uh, he says, nope, don't know what that means. I'm like, are you sure? Because I was pretty clearly seeing it in my mind. Mm -hmm. He goes, no, because I, who told you this? And he was very skeptical because he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. No, I've already, he's already been asking me about some of the things that I told him. Yeah. But he said, who put you up to this? I'm like, I, nobody, Norhan. I said, like, he goes, how did you know this guy? He goes, well, his name's not even Charlie. It's Achari. <laughs> and I used to work with him at the airport like five or six years ago. I'm like, I said, Orhan, I mean, not to be, you know, uh, a sinecure of what you're saying, but just think about this. I didn't even know you worked at the airport five or six years ago. How am I supposed to know you, a, a guy that you work with named Achari, nicknamed Charlie, that, you know, somehow disappeared at the town of Country Bar? How am I supposed to put all that together? And he says, I don't know. He mm -hmm. says, but, you know, whoever put you up to this, it, it's just not cool, he said. Mm -hmm. I said, you know what, let's just drop it. Mm -hmm. And I said, fine. And he never, he never bugged me anymore, which was kind of nice. But um, about a month or so later, I came into work and I always picked up the Calgary Sun paper because I was a big uh, Calgary Flames fan and I always wanted to check with the Flames scores. And I would be flipping through the paper for the scores and I'd come across a story about an unsolved murder of a guy named Achari, wow. nicknamed Charlie, who was last seen at the town of Country Bar. And then they had a picture of where he was found, uh, unfortunately, murdered. 
in this downstairs basement apartment at this address. And they had, and it was like the exact picture I saw in my wow. mind. Mm. So Orin comes in and he sits down and I put the paper in front of him and I say, Orin, read this. I'm circling things, underlying and things. I'm circling the picture of the house. And he's like, what are you trying to say? I didn't do anything. I wasn't even in the country when this happened. <laughs> I'm like, no, Orin. I said, you see that house? Remember I talked to you about knowing something about going into this downstairs basement apartment? He go, he, well, he said, at first he said, no, I don't remember any of that. Right. I said, baloney. I, I, I used a different word, but I'll yeah, use yeah. baloney here. <laughs> and he said, well, maybe I do. He goes, why <laughs> is this so important to you? He said, why won't you let this go? I said, I said, do you see the secretness in all this and me connecting this guy? Now there's a story in the paper. And I said, did you know this part? about going downstairs into the basement apartment place and the address of where he was found because I did not. I said, I need you to swear in somebody's life here, Oran. I need you to like promise me like that you did not, because this is very important thing that you're, we're talking about here. I'm going to tell you, Oren, I think I'm a mind reader and I don't know what's happening with me, but if you didn't know this, then it came from somewhere else. Hmm. And he said, man, he says, who do I have to swear? And I said, your kid's life, your wife's life. And he goes, man, I'll never swear my kid's life. Just in case I <laughs> I heard it and I don't remember. But he says, I could probably swear my wife's life. <laughs> 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 Funny backstory, him and his wife came to my show probably about 10 years ago in Calgary. And I usually tell that story because that was my aha yeah. moment. Yeah. It was the moment that made me realize that what I was seeing, feeling, hearing, I'm kind of, I was being told a story by, and it felt like a person who was telling me about themselves. Yeah, yeah. But if he didn't know, then where is that coming from? Yeah. How is that coming to me? And I, I mean, I could then at that moment, and I did write a book called The Language of Spirit. Uh, the reason why I titled it that is because I felt I learned a language of communication. Mm. And was through my inner seeing, my inner hearing, my inner feeling, my inner sensing. Um, and there's fancy words to describe these things like clairvoyance, clairsentience, sure. clairaudience, claircognance. I didn't know what those meant mm. because I, I didn't, it wasn't part of my vocabulary. Sure. But it was like spirit had then started to talk to me in a way and communicate to tell me about themselves. Right. And I did get information to the police in Calgary about that many years later before I wrote my book. But, um, you know, it was a moment that shifted my life profoundly. Yeah. Because then I realized this wasn't my imagination. This wasn't in something in someone else's head. This was coming to me from somewhere else. Mm. And, and it feels like they're people. Whether they're physically alive or alive in spirit they are able to still communicate. Right. And that led me on a whole journey and it, it, it's, it hasn't stopped. And, right. you know, I, I feel like we all have a purpose in life mm -hmm. and I feel like doing what I'm doing is fulfilling my purpose. Yeah. Uh, Sean, just before we finish up, <laughs> this is one, one last question here. If you, and you, sure. I don't know if you can sum this up quickly. What have you learned so far about the spirit world? Well, I know it overlays our own world. 
It's energetic like an aura above our own world. There's okay. no place that it isn't. Okay. Um, I see trees. I see birds. I see animals. Uh, mm. I've been connected by profound animals, even my own totem animal, the polar bear, mm. um, that has showed up in a dream. Um, but I, there, there's people from all walks of time mm. uh, on the other side. Mm. I do believe in reincarnation. Right. I do believe that we do have an opportunity to come back into the physical world again when we're ready. But most of our ancestors will stay on the other side until we make it back home. Mm. And then decisions like that aren't made once again. But right. it's, uh, it's as beautiful as the world is. <laughs> it's as, as beautiful there, if not greater. Uh, very nice. Sean, fascinating speaking with you. Thank you so much, uh, Jimmy Gwetch and, and Nyarago, for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about Season 2 of The Spirit Talker, which is premiering on the Aboriginal People's Television Network, APTN, Wednesday, September the 14th, and I think you said 15th. It's going to be both in English and Mi'kmaq, correct? That is correct. Yeah, 14th is Mi'kmaq, 15th is English. Okay, and people can see that at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and Mountain Time uh, weekly on APTN. Sean Leonard, he is the host and the spirit talker in the show Spirit Talker that is on APTN. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again tomorrow right here on Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.